Spanish fetish. So um, I'm with uh, Dean Pariosofsky, and it's my great pleasure to be part of welcoming you to the Northwestern University Law Review Symposium. Um, and, and I'll have some thank yous to say in a moment for the incredible work um, of so many people that have brought this together. Um, but, you know, we really value um, every symposium that we do here, um, not just this in particular, because it's such an important opportunity for our students who are, you know, are the ones who give me hope for the future and are going to be our future leaders to get to engage leading scholars on pressing issues that are facing society today. And so our law school is always thrilled to get the chance to support the law review and putting on this important event um, uh, because, as, as I said, I mean, the students really represent the future of the field. Um, but this symposia in particular, symposia in particular um, on fraud and the erosion of trust, it's hard to think of a more timely topic. Um, I think it's become even more timely since the selection of it. Um, uh, we're in a moment where fraud has become so prevalent in our society that it's led to widespread distrust. Um, continuing to, to contributing to a general sense of destabilization, which I know you've been talking about and will continue to talk about throughout the day. Um, and the examples that, that, um, that, that, that I know you'll be discussing are that an estimated 15% of federal paycheck protection program loans, totaling more than $76 billion, went to fraudulent claimants. And of course, you know, COVID-related fraud saturates social media, though we might not want to trust everything that saturates social media. Um, in terms of like which ones are actually true. Um, in January 2022, um, in, 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 in a fraud that's been popularized in a book, in a, in a movie, um, Elizabeth Holmes, the former CEO of the blood testing company Theranos, was found guilty of fraud for misleading investors. And of course, multiple pharmaceutical companies have been forced to admit or have been found guilty of misleading doctors, the FDA, and the public about the addictiveness of opioid um, medications, which of course have been very intertwined with our opioid epidemic. And, you know, I, I don't feel like a few days before the midterm elections, we can talk about fraud without also talking about the terrible impacts of our on our democracy of false claims of fraud. So as everyone in this room knows, um, about 60% of people in this country are gonna be voting in a few days on a ballot that contains an election denier. And I wanna be clear that this point isn't a partisan one. Republicans and Democrats both played a critically important role in actually ensuring that votes were counted in the 2020 election. And they also, judges, and of course, we're so honored to have um, a judge with us today, who I'll talk about in a moment, uh, Judge Rakoff, um, but judges played such an important role who were, who were nominated by both Republicans and Democrats in election certification, in, in making sure, you know, looking at these claims of fraud. Um, but, you know, we're in a moment where the latest Gallup polling finds an all-time low in trust in our three branches of government. And so I think it's critically important for us to have these conversations today because these issues of fraud are deeply impacting our society, but also at the core right now of, of the fight for our democracy. And so I think, you know, it, it's, it, it could not be more important that you all are having these discussions. Um, our law school, um, you know, I really, I, I talk a lot about how our law school not only has, has opportunities, but I think that law schools have a responsibility to be part of constructive public work on, on issues of the day. Um, and, you know, um, I'm really grateful to the many ways that our law school is contributing on these issues, 
Um, and since I am not the keynote speaker, I'm supposed to speak very quickly, I'll just mention three. Um, one is that um, our Bloom Legal Clinic um, has been partnering with community organizations in, in um, Chicago to do really important work around um, mortgage fraud and helping people who are, who are vulnerable and have been, been harmed in that way. Um, as, I, as I warned her in advance, um, our symposium organizer, uh, Professor Emily Cadence, um, who is the Williams Professor of Law, has developed, uh, as you know, many insights into the role of trust, reputation, custom, and private ordering. Um, in medieval and um, the early modern history of martial law, it's currently focusing um, on really important, like cutting edge work on the history of commercial fraud and its implications. Um, and I also, since we were talking about elections, wanted to mention that Professor Michael Kane, who's the class of 1940 professor of law, um, and a nationally recognized expert on campaign finance, voting rights, redistricting, judicial elections, um, and corporate governance, has focused, among other topics in his work, on the implications for crucial election law issues of what he calls hyperpartisanship and hyperpolarization, which I'm sure nobody can catch on what that could be possibly about um, at this moment. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm really excited um, for the rest of the conversation that, that you all will be having this afternoon on how lawyers can help rebuild trust in our polarized society, in our civic and legal institutions, and really support both democracy and fairness in this country. I think it's a collective project that we all have to work on together. Um, I also just wanted to take a moment to, to make a few acknowledgments. And um, even though when I asked who I should thank, um, uh, our, uh, our symposium, senior symposium at Editor Sarah Wolf Knight did not include herself. Um, I wanted to thank her. Um, yeah, I know, right? Um, <laughs> I wanted to thank her and the wonderful team of law review students who, who worked with her together um, on the law review symposium committee to plan the event. And of course, I you know have to also do it a shout out to our editor in chief, sitting right there, Bradford again, for just tremendous leadership of this law review and, and sort of the, the projects that he and that the whole leadership team have. But taking it an additional symposium, I think, are, are moving our learning forward in really important and thoughtful ways. Um, our, our, our organizers, Professors Emily Cadence and Professor Edward Ballastine, and I didn't double check. I hope I just got your name right. You can correct me. Um, and then also the Journal Administrative Advisors, Marianne Wu, James McMasters, and Eileen McKeeler, um, for their wonderful work. Um, we also need to, of course, thank Sebastian Bujak, um, Director of Special Events, Katrina and the AV team and the facilities team for the like, critical organizational work. And then I think it's really important that we always thank the people who prepare and serve our food. And so I'd like us to also thank Ashley and the team at Compass Catering. So can we just take a moment to acknowledge all of these people? And of course, I would like as the dean not only to welcome, but to thank these amazing speakers we have here today for traveling across the country to be here and sharing their insights and important dialogue, um, including, of course, our, our keynote speaker, Judge Raycock, who we're incredibly honored to have with us today. Um, we're grateful for your many contributions throughout your career in addressing issues of fraud, and, and I'm really excited to hear your insights. Um, but, I'm going to refrain from giving that introduction because I have the pleasure of getting to introduce one of our students to introduce Judge Raycock. Um, and so um, I often, as I said, say our students and we hope for the, the future. And, and so it's my great pleasure to introduce 
um, Danny Demicia, who's a, a class of 2023, and will be introducing Judge Raycock. Um, Danny's from Seattle, and he graduated from the University of Washington with a BA in accounting. He'll be working at Covington and Burling in Washington, D.C. after he graduates. Um, but I, what we really all need to do is congratulate because there's no auditing overseas. How the United States can learn from recent financial audit reform in the United Kingdom will be published in the 2023 symposium issue of the Northwestern University Law Review, which we all believe, as far as we know, to be the first time that a student note is, is being included in our law review symposium. Notice I gave that lawyerly caveat, um, but, but we are unaware of any other student note that's been included. Um, and in this note, what, what, what Danny does, um, which I think, I think is really critically important to the conversations all of you are having today, um, is he explores anti-fraud reforms um, to the regulatory structure governing the U.S. financial audit market through a comparative lens. So he surveys high-profile audit reported reforms generated in the United Kingdom, um, arguing that the United Kingdom can actually serve as a critical guide um, for how we might approach preventing um, and, and uncovering financial fraud in the United States. So it is a really important scholarly contribution. Um, and so please join me in congratulating and welcoming Danny Demetria. Thank you for the kind words, Dino Sofsky, and I'd just like to reiterate um, all of the thank yous. This has already been an incredible experience, and I know we're still not done, so I'm looking forward to the second half of the symposium. Um, and it's my distinct honor today to introduce our keynote speaker, Judge Jed S. Raykoff, who has served since March 1996 as a U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of New York. Judge Raykoff frequently sits by designation on the Second and Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and his most noteworthy decisions have been in the areas of securities law and criminal law. He is an adjunct professor at Columbia Law School and New York University School of Law and teaches at University of California Berkeley School of Law and the University of Virginia School of Law. He has written over 180 published articles, 835 speeches, and 1,800 judicial opinions on top of co-authoring five books. Judge Rakoff holds a BA in Swarthmore College a Master's of Philosophy from Oxford University, and a JD from Harvard Law School. After graduating from Harvard, he, he clerked for Judge Abraham L. Friedman on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. From 1973 to 1980, he served as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, the last two years as Chief of Business and Securities Fraud Prosecutions. From 1980 to 1995, he was a litigation partner at two large firms in New York. Judge Rakoff's biography is, biography is replete with far too many examples of his unrivaled intellect and unceasing commitment to public service for me to recount all of them in the two minutes I was given today. Suffice it to say that it is a unique honor and privilege to host Judge Rakoff at Northwestern Law this afternoon. So please join me in welcoming the Northwestern University Law Review's 2022 Symposium keynote speaker, Judge Jed S. Rakoff. So uh, I'm 
honored to be here, and I want to thank Danny for that very kind introduction. I'm very happy that my wife, who's from Chicago, was not able to come with me on this trip because after hearing that introduction, she would have wanted to offer a rebuttal. <laughs> Um, I have to start off by uh, making a disclaimer. As a federal judge, I am prohibited uh, from discussing uh, any uh, case or any issue that is likely to come before me for a decision uh, in the uh, foreseeable future. So that concludes my remarks. <laughs> um, let's talk about fraud. And I, I want to focus particularly on financial fraud. Um, the, despite really decades of attempts to prosecute and uh, deter substantial financial fraud, um, every indication is that it continues to abat. Um, take, for example, the uh, familiar fraud known as a form of fraud known as insider trading. Now, um, there have been quite a few criminal prosecutions directed at insider trading for the last few decades, but every study suggests that they've had little or no general deterrent effect. Uh, for example, um, the uh, there was a paper recently presented at the 2022 annual meeting of the American Financial Association, uh, which showed data based on trading patterns that uh, insider trading occurs uh, uh, prior to uh, one out of every five uh, merger and acquisition announcements and one out of every 20 quarterly earnings announcements and that this has continued at that level or even a slightly increasing level for the last 20 years. There's other research uh, that more or less confirms those findings. For example, there are several studies that show that there's an abnormally high trading volume directly before 25% of all corporate M&A announcements. Uh, and there's one study that shows that it's even a higher percentage uh, for trading in pharmaceutical stocks, uh, which go up dramatically just before uh, FDA announcements regarding the approval of drugs. So we don't seem to have done much in really deterring insider trading, but that's just the, the tip, of, tip of the iceberg. It's really nothing compared to what I'm sorry to say is the great American tradition of cheating on your taxes. Um, a recent uh, National Bureau of Economic Research paper estimates that just the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the United States evade federal taxes at the, to the tune of $175 billion per year. Just an extraordinary amount. And that's just that one small group. 
Now, all of this is in notable contrast, contrast to many economic crimes not involved in fraud, where there has been a steady decline over the past few decades. For example, FBI data show that the rate of property crimes not included fraud uh, and not in using and not including the use of force has declined about one third over the past decade. And even when you put back in those economic crimes that do involve uh, force like robbery or burglary, um, the same pattern is, if anything, even greater. The absolute number of burglary counts charged throughout the United States declined from just under 2 million per year in 2011 to only 1 million per year in 2019 and just over 600,000 in 2021. And while the FBI reported approximately uh, 7,500 bank robberies in 2003, the number plummeted by two thirds to approximately 2,400 in 2019 and just over 1,700 in 2021. So why has financial fraud persisted or even increased while other economic and property crimes have decreased? Uh, let me suggest five factors that may have played a role. Uh, first, and most obviously, uh, there's a long line of uh, well-established criminal criminological research going back to the famous uh, 18th century criminologist, uh, Cesare Beccaria, uh, that shows that the single biggest deterrent to nonviolent crime is not the severity of punishment, but rather the frequency and speed of being caught. And every big example that uh, you may be familiar with involves speeding. Uh, research shows that there is a direct correlation between the increased use of speeding cameras uh, and the concomitant decline in arrests for speeding. And that's you know common sense. Drivers recognizing now that there's a much more uh, likelihood that they will be caught and caught on the camera uh, have adjusted their behavior and uh, uh, the statistics bear that out. Uh, but it's much harder to catch people committing fraud because fraud's essence is deception. Indeed, a deception that is sufficiently plausible that a, a victim doesn't know for quite some time often uh, that she's being defrauded. Uh, the plausibility of the deception, moreover, often makes it difficult for prosecutors to prove that the deception was purposeful as opposed to an innocent mistake. And proving as much requires substantial time and resources. So the first of my five factors is 
the difficulty of catching and prosecuting fraud. A second factor that may not be quite so obvious is uh, the tradition, particularly the Anglo-American tradition, of being very demanding as to what is legally required to prove fraud. A common law, even a civil claim of fraud, required the claimant to prove that the defendant had intentionally lied about a material fact on which the plaintiff had relied to her detriment. Except in unusual circumstances, common law fraud was not actionable if the victim had simply been misled by silence or half-truths or by overly optimistic promises or projections or the like. So at common law, I said to you, uh, would you like to buy my cow for two shillings? Uh, but I failed to disclose that I knew that the cow had bad cow disease. I was going to die in a week. Uh, the common law said there is no fraud because I owed you no legal duty to disclose negative information, however material. And it was your job to check out the cow. This, of course, was the common law doctrine known as caveatator or scholars would say, yeah, we are it or um, let the buyer beware. And uh, in the early years of our republic, it was adopted by every single uh, U.S. Uh, jurisdiction, state and federal. What was the reason for this narrow common law conception of fraud? My own reading of the early cases is that common law judges feared that Without such limitations, fraud uh, could be alleged in every commercial case that went sour and thus deter the growth of commerce and industry. But as the modern economy emerged, the limitations of this approach greatly increased. If it were hard enough for uh, you to detect that somehow the cow that was selling you was about to die, it was immensely more difficult for you to detect that the price of the stock that I was offering to sell you to a company located hundreds of miles away was premised on overly optimistic projections. Now, to be sure, sometimes when the deleterious effect of fraud became so widespread as the scandal as to lead to a public outcry, state and federal legislatures will intervene and create statutory exceptions to carry out enter, such as after the Great Depression, the federal securities laws that prohibit half-truths to the purchase of securities, although they don't still affect silence. Or the more recent elected decades, state limit laws that uh, some, somewhat limit the ability of the use car salesmen to sell you the modern equivalent of a cow. But on the other hand, the state and even national competition to attract big business by lessening impediments to aggressive business practices have produced such doctrines as Delaware's famous 
business judgment by which all kinds of doubtful practices can be camouflaged as the exercise of the business executive's discretion. So, right today and in the foreseeable future, the law still places major barriers to the prosecution of fraud. A third factor in the persistence of widespread fraud has been the failure of state and federal legislatures to provide meaningful funding for the detection and prosecution of financial fraud. Historically, this was most obvious in the case of the Internal Revenue Service, which until very recently uh, was provided with a minuscule budget to go after tax cheats. This was frankly all the more remarkable when one considers that deterring tax fraud would, among other benefits, increase government uh, confidence. Perhaps it reflected the tradition of American antipathy to taxes and tax collectors, or maybe it was a byproduct of the constant political push to reduce taxes. But whatever the reasons, the fact is that the IRS, by its own mission, has proven unable for lack of resources uh, to prosecute even a tiny fraction of those cases where it is actually uncovered in tax invasion. Uh, in 2018, for example, the IRS conducted 1.2 million audits of suspicious tax returns and yet brought only 795 cases uh, for tax fraud after that 1.2 million audits, a tiny, tiny fraction even though these audits were of tax returns that were selected because they were on their face uh, suspicious. Uh, the chief of the criminal investigations for the IRS was quoted as uh, at the time as saying, yes, it's quote, startling low, but we just don't have the funds to do more. Um, but the IRS is hardly alone. The Securities and Exchange Commission is another example of a fraud agency that is possibly underfunded. Among other things, this means that not only that in some major cases of securities fraud go undetected or made off, but that even that in order to justify even the modest budgets that these agencies have. Agencies like the SEC must resort to going after the low-hanging fruit, the obvious but typically small cases that allow the agency to tell Congress that it successfully prosecuted more cases last year than the year before. Additionally, uh, even those even those cases uh, are often settled uh, for payments. Uh, my colleague at Columbia Law School, Professor John Coffey, has written about the predicament that the SEC and similar agencies face because, as he states, quote, the SEC needs to show Congress that it is bringing more cases in order to obtain a larger budget. But the result is that the, quote, the SEC is forced to settle cases 
more leniently in order to provide those statistics. The result, he says, quote, is like imposing a 1% tax on fraud, annoying to defendants, but never enough to deter. Now, there has been an approach taken from time to time in our history to try to supplement government deterrence by incentivizing private citizens uh, to go after fraud. And although this approach dates back to at least the enactment of the so-called Keaton actions in the mid-19th century, the modern poster child for such an approach is the securities class action. And it must be noted that uh, a number of these securities class actions do result in very uh, large returns that may have a important deterrent effect. I had a case a few years ago when the SEC uh, was bringing action against the Bank of America for a very substantial fraud uh, committed in the wake of the financial crisis. And um, the uh, initial proposal by the SEC was uh, that that case be settled for $30 billion. Um, I rejected that approach, but I did eventually approve uh, a proposal to settle uh, that uh, complaint for $150 million. But then, based on nothing more than the facts that the SEC had put in their complaints, a private action was brought that resulted uh, in a recovery of almost $3 billion. So that can have some determined effect. But what that case also shows is that most of the really big securities class actions uh, have simply ridden on the coattails of prior government investigations rather than generating independent investigations by the securities plaintiffs bar. Uh, and private class actions also tend to be very unpopular with Congress and the Supreme Court. They are perceived rightly or wrongly as lawyer driven with the lawyer's attorney's fees being the greatest item in recovery. And um, the uh, result of Congress has been tested with acts like the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act and the harder harder to bring these cases. And the Supreme Court came very close in the Halliburton case to doing away with them all together. In short, uh, one of the factors that still persists in the prevalence of financial fraud is uh, the failure of even these private actions uh, to immediately act as a deterrent, except in a few very large cases. Um, the fourth factor in the uh, prevailing frequency of frauds, especially corporate frauds, uh, has been the emphasis placed by the securities markets on meaning short-term projections. 
This, in turn, is partly a functional fact that stocks are now mostly owned not by individuals who might be interested in long-term profitability, but by investment funds that can make instant changes in their investments in order to generate short-term returns. For example, in the 1970s, when most securities of the New York Stock Exchange were still owned by individual shareholders, the average length of time a share of a New York Stock Exchange company was held by an average investor was about seven years. Today, a typical investor, which today means an institutional investor, will hold a stock on average uh, for a mere seven months. In fact, uh, the lion's share of all U.S. securities trading, some estimate up to 70%, is now done not just by institutional investors, but by hyper-speed traders who trade stocks according to mathematical algorithms that are focused in our desire to get a short-term profitability. Sometimes, therefore, these institutional investors may literally only own a stock for a few seconds before they shift to another one. But the concomitant pressure to meet quarterly projections of profitability growth and thereby keep a company's stock price aside, which, by the way, is critical when so much executive compensation is tied to stock options generates a constant inducement to account for a, a very big element in modern fraud. Now, finally, I would mention a fifth factor, which has been the failure of the past few decades, uh, indeed, in some cases, the downright refusal of the government to prosecute high-level uh, corporate executives, even when there was clear evidence that they had either orchestrated or at least last and acquiesced in major frauds. Now, I've written uh, a number of articles about this, so I won't dwell on it too much. Uh, but uh, what I do want to point out is here again um, the lack of funding and resources plays a big role because. Uh, it's easy to go after a company for these frauds, but much harder to go after the individual executives, even though, of course, the company did not, in any literal sense, commit the fraud. It was some people in the company who committed the fraud. Um, but the, the way it works, and this is particularly true at the federal level, is a product, again, of a legal doctrine, uh, responding on superior. Uh, under federal law, the crimes, even the lowest level employee are automatically imputed to the company. So financial fraud has occurred. Prosecutor has two choices. Either he can spend several years trying to see to how high a level it traces and who was really responsible, or he can just call in the company and say, uh, whoever was responsible, you're guilty and you better settle. And the company will then settle often for uh, big bucks, although they are rarely equal to the amount of profit gained from the fraud. Um, 
and also promise never to do it again and put in some in place some prophylactic measures. There's a whole book uh, by Professor Brandon Garrett at Duke Law School called Too Big to Jail, which shows how little deterrent effect this has had. Um, and it also, frankly, strikes me as a little bit amoral. Um, why are you going after the company when you should be going after people who either orchestrated the fraud or were in a position to stop it and consciously chose not to do so, uh, as opposed to uh, just getting some uh, money in the government coffers from the company as a whole. Anyway. Those are my five factors, but I don't suggest that I've exhausted the factors that make financial fraud a more difficult kind of crime to detect, prosecute, and deter than most other kinds of uh, crimes, and even other economic crimes. Uh, but let me shift gears for a second and uh, address what this all means to persons or attempted to engage in such frauds. This part of my talk is somewhat impressionistic. I base it partly on the 15 years uh, I spent uh, in private practice as a so-called white-collar criminal defense lawyer uh, defending uh, people who uh, were accused of such frauds and sometimes even were guilty, uh, but I kind of off anyway. Um, <laughs> they, uh, but it's even more based on my last 26 years as a judge when uh, I've had a chance to find out through probation reports and other sources a lot about the motivation of those people who were caught and were prosecuted for fraud. Um, and uh, some of these uh, defendants acted out of greed, uh, some for a desire for an advancement of power, and some from the troubled psychological impulses. But what they all had in common was the belief that they could get away with it. Because in their experience, most financial fraudsters that get caught let alone prosecuted and imprisoned. And I submit that is an accurate perception of the problem. Nor will it change, I'm proof of it, until the five factors that I've mentioned are addressed, and most especially until much more money is put into funding government investigation and prosecution of financial fraud. In a way, there soon may be a way to kind of, kind of test this hypothesis. But the current administration has taken this broader step. And among other things, uh, the IRS, so long nickel and dime by both Congress and the executive, has recently received a substantial funding increase of no less than $80 billion over the next 10 years. <laughs> and half of that specifically dedicated, dedicated to tax enforcement. If 
my thesis is right, this should result in the short run in a material increase in civil and criminal actions brought for task fraud, and then followed perhaps a decade later by a decrease in the number of reported tax crimes as the deterrent effect takes effect. And in the meantime, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that the new funding will raise an additional $203 billion in revenue over the next decade, largely as a direct result of the increased enforcement and audits. <coughs> and Larry Summers, along with his co-author, Natasha and Sarin, have estimated that actually increased revenues could be as much as a trillion dollars uh, because even those who are not audited will now have a motive to clean up their act. Of course, all this is very hypothetical, very you know, simplistic. There are many other factors that could have been what happens. Uh, nevertheless, it'll be interesting to watch whether one of the most common forms of fraud tax cheating can be more meaningfully deterred. In the meantime, the other side of the fraudsters' confidence that they can get away with it is the public perception, the accurate public perception, the financial fraud remains very common. And I worry that that perception by itself could tend to diminish one of the United States' greatest assets, which is the worldwide confidence in its financial markets. One has only to look at countries where fraud is far more prevalent than in the US to see the results. A lack of foreign investment, a flight of capital from the country itself, and an increase in corruption as confidence in the benefits of proceeding honestly decreases. To have this happen in the U.S. would be a truly terrible result, and one we should be more on our guard for that. So those are my thoughts. Thank you.